God, thank you for the week that's been. Uh, thank you so much that you are sovereign over every one of our lives and over this world. Father, we, we pray as uh, we come before your word, now that you'd calm our hearts, whatever's going on inside them, help us to just be able to focus, to lay aside all our anxieties and worries and things that are occupying our headspace. And give us some encouragement this afternoon. And help us to feel refreshed after we leave tonight. And be ready next week to keep running the race and following your son, Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, when life goes pear-shaped, who do you turn to? In the space of five years, I've nearly married off all of my mates. And I've played all the roles from set-up man to best man to preacher man. Right? I've done it all. But the sad thing is, <clears throat> I've actually already witnessed three of those marriages bust up. And in two of them, I was either the best man or the preacher. And like, you know that divorce happens. You, you hear about it all the time, but you never assume it's going to be people that you're friends with, especially when you're 30 years old. And uh, especially when they're so, they were supposedly so strong in their faith. One of them was even a Christian Union president once. Like, how does that even happen? For one of them, it came down to feelings. The girl just didn't feel in love anymore. And the honeymoon phase was over and stress and anxiety and frustration had replaced the joy and the love and the happiness she once experienced. When life went pear-shaped for her in her marriage, she had a choice to make. Do I trust my feelings or do I trust God and his wisdom even when it doesn't feel right? And sadly, that girl went with her feelings and pulled the pin. How many times in life do we find ourselves in situations, maybe not as significant as that, but with a similar dilemma? We have to, we have to either trust God with something hard or trust in someone or something else. You see, this kind of issue, this dilemma is universal. It knows no age. It happens at every part of life. It knows no gender, male or female. Uh, or any demographic. All of us get put in some sort of situation like that. And when life goes belly up, we're always faced with a decision to trust God or trust something or someone else. And if you've been following our DPC series of Isaiah, you'll be aware of a guy named Ahaz. And this man faced a similar kind of situation to my friends. But the, but the thing was, <clears throat> his decision impacted an entire nation. He was king of Judah. Israel and Syria were threatening to invade his country. And there was a superpower, a country called Assyria. And they said, we will help you. We will help you. And so he had this choice. Do I trust God and potentially have these countries invade me? Or do I turn to this superpower and know that there's going to be protection? Let me put a modern twist on it. Can you imagine that Ahaz was Malcolm Turnbull, right? And, and imagine North Korea and China have decided to turn on Australia. They're coming in. And at the same time, Donald Trump gets on the phone. Malcolm, if you, turn with, if you trust me, I will send troops. You will have protection. They won't harm you. And sure enough, that happens. Protection is given. But then a few years down the track, the US muscle their way into our country. And before you know it, America has eight new stars to add to the flag. 
Now, some of you are thinking, but America's great. That's not a problem. Whatever your thought of America is, you take the point, right? Who we trust has consequences attached to it. And Isaiah 7 teaches us an incredibly practical life lesson. And it can be summed up like this. It's in your passage. Trust God, don't do an Ahaz. Trust God, verses 1 to 9, and don't do an Ahaz, verses uh, 10 to 25. So come with me on a whiplash tour of verses 1 to 9. Look at verse 1. We're told who's running the show in the Middle East. right? Ahaz is king of Judah. Rezin is king of Syria and Pekah is king of Israel. They're the big names. And we're told that Syria and Israel, well, they want to come in against this city called Jerusalem, but they're not ready yet. And the problem's in verse 2. The house of David, the catch-all phrase for Judah, when they found out about these twin threats, the hearts of both their leader and their people shook. Look at the way that the metaphor used there. Think of the windiest day in Melbourne when it's gusting 100 k's an hour and trees, uh, tree limbs are falling down. In some cases, whole trees are toppling over. Really violent. Imagine that's your heart. That's the kind of ferocity of fear and anxiety that these people are experiencing. And now in verses 3 to 9, God instructs the prophet Isaiah to warn and encourage this leader. Firstly, see where Ahaz was sent to. It's the end of the conduit of the upper pool. You see, Ahaz was examining the utilities. Do I have enough water? If these two countries come in, I try and lock down, will we be able to hold hold it together? Already, Ahaz was beginning to place his trust in Assyria instead of God. Secondly, look at the name of Isaiah's son. Do you see it there? It's a hard one to say. Sheer Jashub. It reminds me of that guy from um, that character from Star Wars. The, what is it, the, the, Jab, the Jabite? I don't know. Anyway, he's, that's the one. The name means a remnant will return, right? A small amount will return. And that may, maybe that's God making a future statement to Ahaz. Judgment is going to come to Judah, but God will have a remnant there that will continue in the land. And then look at the, four, thirdly at the four commands from God to Ahaz. This is what he says. Be careful. Be quiet. Do not fear and do not let your heart be faint. And you see, on every one of those fronts, Ahaz was failing. And God is putting the offer on the table. Ahaz, this is your final choice. Trust me or pay the consequences. Now, you can kind of sympathize with the guy, can't you? I mean, he's leading this entire, an entire nation, right? There's genuine threat on the doorstep. And I'm sure the people are putting the pressure on you. Don't just do nothing. <laughs> Get us some help, right? Assyria are clearly the biggest player. They're offering to protect us. Use that. Don't just, and, you know, and, and, and trusting God would have seemed perhaps to the people and to Ahaz like doing nothing. And so, of course, if he, if he wants to be popular, it makes sense that he wouldn't trust God, but that he would trust in a human power. You can kind of sympathize with him. But God wanted Ahaz to see Ahaz's enemies the way God sees them. Right? Ahaz saw Israel and Syria as huge powers, huge threats. But God invited him to see the enemy differently. Look at the, the illustration used in verse 4. You see, 
God sees those two nations as smouldering firebrands. Just think like after a bushfire, you know when you see on TV the blackened area, and for kilometres and kilometres, this is blackened earth, right, and tree stumps on fire, right? Imagine a little uh, stick, and there's an ember on the end of it, and it can't do anything. The ground's burnt for miles, right? It's useless. The power's gone. It's not a threat. That's what God wants him to really see. Right, so most of you know, uh, this year is the 500th year since the Reformation. Yeah? And Martin Luther, you're thinking, he's Presbyterian, he's going to bring in something about the Reformation. Martin Luther is probably the most well-known and well-remembered dude because he faced an incredible opposition, but he held the line. Right? The Catholic Church were putting the fist down. You need to recant the heresy you're teaching the people, right? Listen to what he said. Unless I'm convinced by the testimony of the scriptures or by clear reason, I am bound by the scriptures I have quoted and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot, I will not recant anything since it's neither safe nor right to go against conscience. I cannot do otherwise. Here I stand. May God help me. Amen. Now, that's guts, right? I'm sure the Catholic hierarchy looked incredibly dangerous and imposing, and they were in one sense. They killed people who went against them. But God was with Luther, and history shows us that the Catholic hierarchy did not have enough power to stop a movement that would forever change the entire continent of Europe. Look at what God's saying in the next five verses. Let me summarize it. I'm aware of who's threatening you, Ahaz, verses 5 and 6, but understand that it will not come to pass if you trust me, verse 7. Here's the reality of the situation for what it really is, verses 8 and 9, and verse 9b. Remember, if you are not firm in your faith in me, you will be in great trouble. This was the final chance for Ahaz to enjoy the benefits of being right with God. Trust God is the first part of the answer to the question we asked. But learning from Ahaz's mistake is the second. Look at what happens next now. You see, God asks Ahaz to ask him for a sign. And look how he describes it. May it be as high as the heaven or as deep as Shoal. In other words, he's saying, ask whatever you want because I will give it. Any sign. And of course, Ahaz is very cunning at this point. Very cunning. I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. You see, he was a quick thinker, and he had to be. He had to walk the fine line between making himself look like he was being obedient to God, but at the same time, actually trusting someone else. Right? His mind was already made up. He knew the law forbade putting God to the test, and so he played the holy card to look good. Ahaz was convinced that choosing Assyria was the only way forward. And this is the crucial moment for Ahaz and Judah in history. Right? Ahaz has decisively chosen Assyria over God, and now he and Judah, they're going to pay for it dearly. Listen to the way God speaks now. Hear then, O house of David. The whole nation has almost completely lost favor now. Isaiah is calling God, my God. You see, in Isaiah's eyes, Yahweh is no longer Ahaz's God. 
God plays hardball now. Ahaz doesn't want to sign. Well, too bad. He's going to hear what the future now looks like for, for Judah and their king. Listen to the description of that sign. The virgin shall, con- shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Most of, most of us have heard that phrase. Every, Christian, sorry, every Christmas time we learn about baby Emmanuel, God with us. Right? He shall eat the curds and the honey before he chooses good and evil. Before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. Now, if you're a details person, I know a lot of you are, you're sitting there and you're wondering, is this Jesus? Who is this Emmanuel? And you're asking that because in verse 17, the birth of this boy is meant to happen in Ahaz's lifetime. But Ahaz lived about 700 years before Jesus did. Is there a contradiction in the Bible? In short, the best way to understand it is like this. All right, Matthew 24, there's a destruction of the temple. All right, Jesus says it's going to happen. Okay, and then we see it happen in AD 70, right? 70 years after Jesus dies. But we also know that it's going to happen in a different sense when he returns. And in the same way, we actually understand that there's a lesser Emmanuel, a man who lived in history in Ahaz's lifetime before Jesus came, you see, the lesser Emmanuel. And next week in chapter 8, We'll actually learn about a, na- a man named Maha Sha'al Hash Buzz. How's that for a long name? And it means speeding to the plunder, hurrying to the spoil. You see, he was born to Isaiah, and a lot of, a lot of um, commentators believe that that is the lesser Emmanuel. Okay? So the remaining verses, these are key in understanding what to do when life goes pear-shaped. You see, the two possible outcomes for Ahaz and Judah are highlighted. And they can be either good or bad, depending on whether God is for or against Judah and their king. Look back at verse 14 with me. The boy will be named Emmanuel. Now, that's good news if you worship God. Right? They'll be, the, the boy Emmanuel will eat curds and honey. This isn't good news. It's bad news. It means that there will be so much food left over because Judah will be white. There'll be no people to eat the food. Before he can choose to do good or evil, the two kingdoms of Ahaz, that Ahaz fears will be deserted. This is good news. Syria and Ephraim, they'll be gone. They'll be, they'll be nothing. But once again, there's bad news. The king of Assyria, in verse 17, will bring about days of horror that Judah has never seen since Israel departed them. Look at, look at the last, like, uh, what is it, seven verses there. 18 to 25, they're kind of like, here's the details of what it's going to look like now for Judah because you failed to trust God. Check it out. Verse 18 and 19. Enemy armies will swarm Judah like a swarm of bees. Right? Verse 20. The Judeans will be shamed like a Jewish man having his beard and hair removed in public by Assyria, the so-called helper. The country will be so depopulated that there will be an abundance of food, verses 21 and 2. And choice farming land that was once productive and beautiful will be thorns and briars, verse 23. Where choice wine was once produced, people will need hunting gear because the land will be run over with wild animals and briars and thorns. What was once probably something akin to the promised land 
has become an absolute wasteland. When life went pear-shaped for Ahaz, he, had, he chose to do an Ahaz. He placed his trust in a human king who would ultimately cross him and ruin his kingdom. God would not have allowed Judah to be pillaged like that if trust in God had happened. And therein lies the lesson for us. Despite, despite how perplexed or intimidated or desperate we might feel in the moment when we are in the dilemma, when life goes pear-shaped, we must place our trust in God. See, God is saying this to you and me. He's saying this. Whenever you face a crisis, know that I'm aware of it. I'm not absent in your moment of greatest need. I'm not busy, too busy to know what's going on. I'm fully aware and understand that I'm in control. Nothing happens unless I permit it. But you understand that you need to see the situation from my perspective. See the threat, see the issue, see the enemy from my angle. Remember the importance of placing your faith in me. Don't do an Ahaz, trust in me. Do what will help you, trust in me. It's hard. I never said it would be easy, but you will always be better for it. You will always be, end up closer to me. Now, this is not easy. Right? In every stage of life, we're, we're asking questions. When we're in school or uni, we're thinking, what do I do when I'm bullied, when my teachers are unfair? when I have no friends, right? when you're a bit older? What should I do when I'm failing, when I'm broke, when I'm hated for my faith? Right? When you're past that phase, what do you do when your job's on the line? Or you're asking, how do I cope when I'm unhappily single? What do I do when I can't have kids? What do I do when my kids have gone off the rails? What do I do when my spouse is giving up? And ultimately, as I think most of you know, it's a matter of this thing right here. If my job is in the line and I worship my job, well, I'll be tempted to do anything to keep it, anything, even if it's cheating or lying. If I'm failing at uni and I worship my future career, I'll be tempted to do whatever it takes to be in the degree, even if it means cheating. If I'm unhappily single and I worship marriage, well, I'll marry anyone who I'm, attracted, who I'm attracted to, even if they don't share my faith. If I worship my kids, I will do whatever it takes to make them happy and safe, even if it means wrapping them up in cotton wool and never letting them out of the house. If I worship my family, I'll do whatever it takes to make them happy, whatever pleases them, even if it means letting my kids abuse my generosity, to, or, to, or, my, or my willingness to look after the grandkids. If my quality of life is dropping and it matters enough, I'll do whatever it takes to change that, even if it means manipulating others to care for me. You see, the reason why it's hard is because we value so many things and we fear that we'll lose those things we love if we choose to trust God. At the start, I mentioned the broken marriages of three friends. Not all of my friends have had that experience. Two of my old friends have been through a lot in their four years of marriage. The biggest challenge that's faced them 
is having kids. They've been trying to conceive since almost since they were married, and they still haven't been able to do it. But you know what? They haven't given up on God, and they haven't just said, let's just do whatever will work. Right? To me, they have been an incredible model of what trusting God looks like when the stakes are exceptionally high. Like, I'm a single guy, and already I'm thinking, what if I can't have kids? But imagine what it's like when you're in the moment and you know that it's really hard. You don't know if you'll ever have it, be able to do it. Now, that's incredibly difficult, yet they are showing incredible faith in God and making sure that they're trusting him with something that's incredibly precious to them. I can only hope that if I'm in that position, I can do the same thing. Trusting God is hard, and especially when the alternative just seems so much easier. And sometimes in the heat of the moment, we do go with the easier option. We do. And maybe that's you. Maybe you're a Christian. Most of you are. And in some area of your life recently, you've had to make a choice, and you took the easy option. And, and you could walk away today just, just feeling really down. You know, like, okay, Isaiah 7 just said, I shouldn't have done what I did. I feel like rubbish, right? And if that's how you're feeling right at this point, I want, I want you to change gear in your mind right now, and I want you to consider this. Think about this. You are a Christian. You follow Jesus. You are in Christ. And when Jesus lived for 33 years on this earth, right, he never failed where you or I did. He was the lamb without blemish. He never chose the easy option like you or I have done. Not my will, Father, but yours be done, he said. And he did it because you and I are his lambs and he's laid down his life for us. And he did it so that you and I wouldn't perish, but that we'd have eternal life and that we'd never actually lose it. So, so if you're feeling down about not trusting God with something in your life right now, I don't want you to walk away feeling gutted. I want you to rejoice in knowing that when you fail to trust God, your saviour, your good shepherd, he's interceding up there for you right now and he's, and he's covering your sin with his blood so that you don't lose that peace that you have with your maker and your father. So let that propel you as you go out in the rest of the week to trust God and to be motivated by that grace when your life takes a turn for the worst. Let's pray. God in heaven, thank you that every single part of your word, from Genesis 1 to Revelation, is practical in some sense, and it's relevant to our life. And thank you that Isaiah 7 speaks to an issue that we all wrestle with. As we go out this week, Lord, help us to trust you more with our hard decisions. And Father, when we inevitably stuff up, would you remind us of the grace that's ours in Jesus? And would that in turn motivate us to, to live more consistently for you? Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.